Well, if you're willing and able, would you stand with me in the honor of God's word? Ernie did a great job of reading our text from Leviticus chapter 2. I would like to read from verses 8 to 10 as we begin this evening. Hear now the word of the Lord. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you by your spirit allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption of which you have graciously made us a part. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus, the one to whom this passage points. And may we all be changed from the inside out as a result. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the July 2017 edition of Table Talk or issue of Table Talk magazine, Joe Thorne wrote an article that I would like to read a brief portion of as we begin. It's a little longer than I typically like to read, but it's something that I think will help us as we move into our passage this evening. Mr. Thorne said this, one of the more dangerous drifts happening in our local churches today is within our corporate worship. In many churches, there is a de-emphasis on the means of grace, scripture, prayer, and the sacraments or ordinances, and a reliance on entertainment. Some try to balance the two in the name of reaching more people with the gospel, but there is an inescapable danger in overvaluing entertainment and implementing it in corporate worship. This is not a new phenomenon, but it is increasingly popular, especially in light of our entertainment-driven culture. For some, Sunday morning or evening, more closely resembles a variety show than an offering made to God. The danger in bringing entertainment into gathered worship lies in the aim of entertainment and its work against the aim of worship. The focus of entertainment is man and its purpose is the refreshment of the mind and body. It is something offered to people for their amusement. The focus of worship is God and its purpose is transformation of the mind and the edification of the spirit. We offer ourselves to the Lord individually and collectively on the Lord's day. The church ascribes honor to God in the reading, preaching, singing, and praying of his word. True worship is inherently God-centered and God-directed. What is done when the church is gathered is to be done according to God's will and for his pleasure. And this stands in opposition to entertainment, which is a, a spiritually powerless work directed at the people. As the church draws near to God, the Lord draws near to us and we receive grace, grace, regenerating grace, renewing grace, reviving grace is offered to the congregation through the means of grace. Entertainment can stir the emotions, but God uses the means of grace to change our affections. Entertainment might draw a crowd or captivate a congregation, but only the means of grace will draw people to Christ and conform them into his image. The beauty of worship is that it is infinitely more powerful than entertainment. Entertainment seeks to replicate drama and all, but the grace of God in worship unveils the deepest drama in the world and produces authentic awe in the light of the revelation of God. Again, a little longer than I would typically 
uh, read, but, but really a, a good segment of that article. And the question I would have tonight is, how, how do we combat that, that drift? How do we combat this drift? And, and very obviously, I think we must remind ourselves over and over and over again that worship is a God-ordained gathering of His people. We gather together, in the words of my friend Tad Thompson, to enjoy God's presence and His pleasure. That pleasure that is upon us. And really... Sometimes we may not realize it, but or we haven't realized it before, but this grain offering in Leviticus chapter 2 says quite a bit in regards to worship. In regards of of how we are to worship and what that looks like. And, And interestingly enough, entertainment has nothing to do with it. And so I've outlined this. You can find the outline in the back of your bulletin. There are three points tonight as we walk through this chapter together. The description of the grain offering, the intentions of the grain offering, and then the applications of the grain offering. So let's look first at the description of the grain offering. And what I would like to do is do that in comparison to the burnt offering of chapter 1. Both for those of us who are here, a reminder of of the burnt offering, but also for those who weren't here. And we can catch you up where we are in our study. So let's let's first look at the similarities of the two offerings and then the differences. And right away in verse 1, we notice that both the burnt offering and the grain offering involve a sacrifice that is of the highest quality. If you remember back in chapter 1, we saw that the burnt offering required a bull or a goat that was perfect or without blemish. And here in chapter 1, or in verse 1 of chapter 2, we see the grain offering is a grain offering of fine flour. And that fine flour was not only finely ground, as I was was sharing with the children, but they would take that stone and they would grind it uh, so very finely. It took time, it took a great deal of effort, um, but it was also made from the internal parts of or the internal or inner kernels of the grain and it was actually considered to be a luxury it was different from that coarse whole grain of the barley and wheat that was more typical in verse 2 we see that both the burnt offering and the grain offering were burned with fire on the altar and both produced a soothing aroma to the lord and then we see throughout the passage and also that the both both offerings were very costly that male bull or that male goat that was unblemished uh, was was very important to the people and very valuable, as was the grain and the oil and the frankincense that would have been very rare and very precious due to where, really, not only because of their cost, but where they were in the desert. Those were, were very valuable commodities. They weren't things that they were going to find or replenish easily. They weren't going to be able to maintain them very well. And finally... And this isn't as much a similarity as it is a correspondence. Those two, these two offerings were offered together or back to back. They would offer the burnt offering first and then they would come behind and follow that with the grain offering. But that's kind of where the similarities end. While they both offered a high quality sacrifice, the sacrifice was, of course, different. The burnt offering was an animal and the grain offering was, of course, grain. And that means that they were different. This grain offering of wheat and barley was different from the burnt offering because the burnt offering involved blood. And because it involved blood and the grain offering did not, there was an atoning. The burnt offering was about atonement. The grain offering was not. And so those who brought the burnt offering would identify themselves with that burnt offering because of the atonement provided, but they would would not have to identify with the grain offering. 
The two offerings were also different in the fact that the animal of the burnt offering, other than the skin or hide, was completely burned or consumed by the fire, where the grain offering was not completely burned by, by the fire. A, a memorial portion was set aside to be burned, and then the rest of that, or the thing most holy, was kept for those for the priests and were to be eaten. And we'll talk about this in just a minute, but we're eaten at another portion of the tabernacle. And then another difference was the level of participation by the worshiper. Of course, there was participation in both offerings. The individual would have to go and find that unblemished animal and bring bring the animal to the altar and they would actually cut it up and, and the priest would then put it on uh, put it on the fire. So they are participating. But in the in the grain offering, the individual had several choices to make. Again, as I was sharing with the children, they would have to decide of, of the wheat or the barley and they were going to grind it very finely. But then they had to decide, am I going to bring it raw or am I going to cook it? And then they had to decide, well, if I cook it, am I going to cook it in the pan? Am I going to cook it in the oven? Am I going to deep fry it? And again, in our terms, we're thinking of of bread or pancakes and and cinnamon rolls and donuts. Um, those those choices that weren't a part of, of that burnt offering that are a part of the grain offering. And then finally, the grain offering, in the grain offering, there were things to add to it and to refrain from it or being a part of it. So leaven and honey were to be avoided while frankincense, oil, and salt were to be a part. Now, though we have very little, if we go back and look, we have very little in terms of actual interpretation or explanation of this offering. There are at least three intentions that I think we can infer from and from not only here, but from other places of Scripture that that give give us the descriptions that were given and the comparisons between the two help us in this. And first, the grain offering was an act of worship. It was an act of worship, having made atonement for sin. Having, having their guilt of sin removed, having been forgiven, having God's favor turned back toward them, uh, the grain offering, and, and having access, the key being they now had access to the Lord, the, the grain offering followed. It was brought. It was a response of gratitude. It was a response of servitude. Because the word there is actually referring to an offering that was considered a tribute. Something that a, uh, a royal subject would bring a king. And so that tribute was brought. It served to exhibit the worshippers appreciation for all that the Lord had done for, for them. It, it showed because of the atonement and forgiveness that had been offered. It was a gift of appreciation for that atonement and forgiveness. But it was a, or a gift to the Lord and appreciation for all that he had done for them. Their constant provision. His constant provision on their behalf. It was a gift of, uh, it was a good gift and a gift that expressed their thankfulness for all of his grace that he had placed upon them. And they took care not to add the leaven and to add the honey uh, that were agents of fermentation and that some commentators describe as symbols of corruption. And that was an act of, of dedication and consecration of themselves as they came before the Lord. And then the salt was added not only as a symbol of purity, but the salt was considered a symbol of covenant making and keeping. So they added the salt and it was a means by which the worshiper would say they are committing themselves to the Lord and committing themselves to his sovereign care. It was their part of the covenant, but it was also a way to recognize and to thank the Lord for his covenant keeping. Acknowledging him as the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. 
Helping themselves even to remember and and to express thankfulness for the assurance that they have that God would keep his covenant and would never leave or forsake them. But it was not not only um, not only provided as an act of worship, but it was also an, an acknowledgement of dependence. By offering the choicest of grain or the finest of flour, by the grain being precious and hard to replenish and the, and the oil and frankincense that were added to it, those, those rare commodities, the, the offering as a whole was a very, very costly sacrifice. And that costly sacrifice, again, acknowledged their complete and total dependence upon God and His provision for them. Like the animal sacrifice, it, it hurt a little bit. And it wasn't something that they practically could afford. So giving of what sustained them took faith. And in many cases, because of where they were, the grain that they had was in, in really for later. It was to be used to be planted later. It was seed that they would use to begin their crops later. So by offering the grain... Not only are they speaking of their dependence at that moment, they were also speaking of their dependence in the future as well. Because they were giving of that which would help them. And so it was a statement of faith for provision both presently and in the future. Well, the final intention was that of an allowance of support. As I mentioned earlier, the handful that was burned was the memorial portion and the remaining portion was the thing most holy, whether raw or cooked, and it was given to the priest. It was the portion that the priest would use to eat. It would sustain them. They didn't grow. They didn't have their own land. They didn't grow their own crops. So they were unable to provide for themselves. And so they didn't they didn't even raise their own animals. And so they received their support from those daily offerings that were provided. And the Lord used that to sustain them physically. And the, the question, the obvious question that comes in is, okay, as we said last week, why didn't we enter in? Why wasn't there an altar at the door where we sacrificed or a bull or goat before we came into worship? And we ask the same question, why? Why aren't we making a grain offering? Why, why don't we come with grain in hand, having made our cakes and our breads and, and come to, to burn them on the altar? And there are several points of application that I'd like to make, and all of them have to do with worship. Our worship of the Lord. I mentioned last week that the burnt offering was about access. Access into God's divine presence. Therefore, I said last week, it would do us well to remember that when we come and gather together to worship, when we come into this place in the presence of the Lord, we come only because we have a mediator greater than Moses. We come and gather together and come into this place in the presence of the Lord only because we have a greater high priest than Aaron. And he, as the great high priest, offered a greater sacrifice than a bull or a goat. He offered himself. It was the imperishable blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us access into his divine presence. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that it's in and through his blood that we find pleasure in the Lord. And only because of what he has done for us. Apart from him, we have no hope. This week, the grain offering is not about access. It's about engagement. 
being in his presence, coming into his presence. Now, what do we do once we're in his presence? What is what is that fellowship? What is that communion? What does that interaction look like? How do we engage him? Worship is not a performance that is meant to entertain us and is not meant to simply be. It's also not simply something that we observe. We're active participants. Therefore, there are a few things as well that I think that we should consider. And first, as I was explaining to the children, I think we would do well to remember that there is an importance to our preparation. There's an importance to our preparation. We're coming into the presence, as we mentioned last week, coming into the presence of a holy God. We as sinners are coming into his presence and and just as time had to be taken to thoroughly examine the animals for the burnt offering sacrifice and the time had to be taken to grind the grain and to and to cook it and to add the elements and then to bring it to to the priest so that it might be burned. I I believe it would profit us in advance to prepare prior to coming to worship. Very simply, and again, there's no form. There are a number of ways to do that. There is no prescribed form, and that is that is purely up to the individual, of course. But but some type would prove to be beneficial of thinking through the coming into the presence of the Lord and what it is that we're going to do, and not not just walking in just as something that we've always done at this particular time, laxadaisically, But what it is. What is it that we're coming to do and what can we do to prepare? Because I believe in this case with with those who are bringing this grain offering that part of again, part of that sweet aroma was not only the offering, but the preparation and the obedience that went into that that offering. Second, I think we would also do well to remember our disposition as we gather. And, And I know I said this last week, but Matt Adams told me it was worth repeating. So I'm going to do that. Now, while we come into his presence with singing in his courts with praise, we would do well to remember that we are to come joyfully, but seriously, that we are to come thankfully, but thoughtfully, and that we are to come confidently, but reverently, and we're to come as prescribed and not as as we please and in a way that glorifies God rather than satisfies our own selfish preferences. Again, it is the Lord into whose presence we come. And, and to come, we had to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the Son had to be sacrificed so that we might come and offer sacrifices. And because of that, thoughtfulness is definitely something that we should consider. Third, I think we would also do well to remember that when we gather, we gather, in the words of Calvin, not to perform mere religious rituals, but to raise our minds to something high. Raise our minds to something higher. The hope of the Israelites was not in their observance of the sacrifice, but in the God to whom the sacrifice was made. And our hope is not in our liturgy as a whole. Our hope is not in any particular element of our liturgy. Our hope is not in our ability to follow the liturgy. Our liturgy is is meant to raise our minds to Christ. It raises our minds to Christ through the prescribed means that God has ordained in his word. It's the liturgy that Aaron that Aaron puts together so prayerfully and faithfully every week. It's that liturgy that that allow that carries the content, the truth of God's word and the truth of what Christ has done. It's it carries that content and we we rest not in the forms, 
Important though they are, we we rest in the Lord who has given us those forms. We rest in the one to whom that liturgy points. We would do well to remember that our minds are to be raised to something higher. Fourth, I think it would be well, we would do well to remember that our worship involves giving. It involves giving. We come to give or to make a sacrifice of praise. We come to offer that praise. We come to praise the Lord. We come that we might glorify the Father by praising and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ as we worship in spirit and in truth. Praising Him for who He is. Praising Him for what He has done. Our worship isn't in any way attempt to perform or to earn God's pleasure or to earn our way into His presence. Those things have been secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come with psalms and hymns, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and that are theologically rich. We come, we come through to, to read, to hear the word read, and to hear the word preached, and to hear the whole counsel of God read and preached. We, we do that through our confessing of our common faith together. And we do that through the prayers that we pray in His name. And we do that through participating in the sacraments. The means of grace. We come to. We we come to remember that it involves giving. But finally, I, I think we would also do well to remember that we we come. Worship involves receiving. We come to receive. We come to receive. Peter Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. To use the language from Exodus, we are a kingdom of priests. We've been made part of a kingdom of priests. I think just as God provided for the needs of the priest through the sacrifices and offerings the Israelites brought to the tabernacle, God provides for us. For you and for me by offering his son to us during worship. It is Christ offered through word and sacrament that nourishes us and satisfies us spiritually. And meets our every need when we come in faith. And So the reality is Christ is not the thing most holy. He is the one most holy upon whom we depend completely and fully is he who is the bread of life on whom we depend let us pray